Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of April 21st from Pastor Brett Cottrell. Let me invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. For the last several weeks that we have been preparing for this resurrection morning, we have been looking at the Old Testament and the signs that are there that point us to what the Messiah was going to do and what he was going to be. And we saw through the stories of Joseph, and we saw in the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. We saw even in the prophet Ezekiel as he looked out upon a valley of dry bones. We saw that there were hints. We saw that there were patterns. We saw that there was signs for us in the Old Testament that pointed to who Jesus was going to be and what he was going to do. We all know what signs are, don't we? If you have a driver's license this morning, you took at some point a sign test so you could tell what the signs were on the traffic as you, as you went out there. Now, we all know what a stop sign looks like, right? Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you actually stop. But we know what it means, right? We know what it points to. When you go out to the interstate and it says Fort Smith one way and Little Rock one way, you know that sign's pointing you in a certain direction. And we've seen these signs in the Old Testament. And as we look this morning in John chapter 20, as we talk about the resurrection and all that it means, we understand, too, one more thing. That the resurrection itself, while it defeated death and gives us, gives us hope, it also is one more sign that points us to something incredibly important. Now, Jesus had talked about these signs in his ministry. And you don't need to turn there at the moment, but uh, a few, uh, few uh, a little time before the events of John chapter 20, some time before the events of the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus was gathered with his disciples and others in the temple. And he had told them, they had threatened him, and he had cast out the money changers, and he had told them, you tear down this temple, or the temple is torn down, and in three days it will be rebuilt. Now, what Jesus was referring to was himself. And he was referring to, you will kill this body, but in three days it will rise again. He was giving them a sign to recognize about who he was. But not only that, he spoke earlier in his ministry about something called the sign of Jonah. Again, we talked about all these Old Testament signs. And Jesus said, I will give you a sign called the sign of Jonah. They, the, the Pharisees have been questioning Jesus' identity. They were recognizing that he was claiming some pretty remarkable things about his relationship to the Father and that he was even God. And they thought him guilty of blasphemy. They thought him guilty of kind of plotting and scheming with demons. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you a sign that will prove to you who I am. It's called the sign of Jonah. Now, they were a little confused by that. But even the Jews of Jesus' day recognized the story of Jonah. They remembered the story of that prophet who had not gone to Nineveh the way God had originally told him. And the result was that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a great fish. And that the people of Nineveh, once they heard Jonah preach, recognized him as being from God because he had survived three days. He had gone into death, if you will. He had been ingested by a great fish, and he had come out resurrected, if you will. And they saw that as a sign that he was from and God. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you that kind of a sign. Now we see where that's going, don't we? We see the, we see the similarity between three days in the fish and three days 
and the grave. Jesus is giving them signs that's going to point to not just what he's going to do, but more importantly, who he is. So as you look at our passage in John chapter 20 this morning, I want to begin in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. He said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. He said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand, put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, may we be with Thomas, confronted with the fact that you are God. That everything you did pointed us to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Earlier in this gospel, earlier in chapter 20, we see the resurrection. I'm going to go back and look at that just real briefly here. John chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Peter and the other disciple went, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple, by the way, that's John, ran ahead faster than Peter and came into the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on the head, on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they had, did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own houses. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around. It saw Jesus standing there. But did not know that it was Jesus. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. He said to her, Mary. She turned. And said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
we can read these accounts and we know we've heard the stories, we know what took place, we know the incidents, we've heard all the stuff before. But I want you to see again what it was like for them who saw him resurrect for the very first time. As we can, we read that, we know the women told the disciples, we know Peter and John went, we know that earlier, uh, the verses we skipped over here, verse 19, 20, that that first Sunday night, the disciples are gathered in that room and Jesus makes an appearance to them. And everyone's there except for Judas, of course, and Thomas. We don't know where Thomas is at. If we were to see that earlier passage, we would say that Thomas was not there. And, and I don't know why he wasn't. It just says in verse 24 that Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came that first night. Where was he? Why was Thomas not there? I don't know about you, but I, these kind of questions flood my mind. Where was Thomas? And by the way, Thomas was not a cowardly man. If you were to go earlier in the Gospel of John, uh, Lazarus is sick, and we know that Lazarus dies of this account, and Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to go to Bethany to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it had been a place where Jesus' life had already been threatened. And Thomas says, if he's going to go, we're going to all go with him and we're going to die with him. Does that sound like the words of a coward? Thomas was not a coward. And yet Thomas was not there that first night. Where was he? Well, I don't know for sure, and I don't even know for sure why he was not there, but I have a couple of ideas, and I want you to, to bear with me as I speculate just a little bit here as to where Thomas was or why he wasn't there. I wonder if Thomas was so invested as they all were, he had his hopes so in, enmeshed in who Jesus was that when he saw Jesus die on that cross, that for Thomas, everything he had hoped for, everything he had dreamed of, died on that cross with Jesus. I would imagine every single one of us in this room knows to some extent what it means to be disappointed. To have something that you have hoped for, have something you have dreamed about, something that you dearly wanted to happen, and then you saw that dream, whatever it was, crushed. You saw, what, you saw that dream, if you will, die. And the, the, the death of that dream was so overwhelming that it crushed not just your dreams, it crushed your soul. It crushed your hopes, and it left you just in a mess. I wonder if maybe that was possibly where Thomas might have been. Maybe Thomas, having placed his hope in Jesus and not understanding why Jesus was really there, having missed all the signs, so to speak, not understanding the signs of the Old Testament, not even hearing clearly the words of Jesus himself. If Thomas had had false hopes raised and he saw them down the cross, and maybe Thomas felt like he had been fooled. Maybe you know what it's like to be disappointed, but maybe you know what it's like to be fooled. Maybe you have experienced what it means to be taken advantage of, to have your hopes here, to have your hopes there, and... When it doesn't happen, you feel like you've been lied to. You feel like you've been betrayed. You feel like you've been duped. Now, when we feel that way, what's our, what's our first uh, emotion? It, if, if you're me, 
if, 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 I, if I have fallen victim to a scam or someone has duped me, I know what I feel. I feel anger. I feel like, how dare you do that to me? And you know what? You know the old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Maybe Thomas on Sunday night is saying, no, you got me once. I'm not falling for this type of stuff again. Maybe he's disappointed. Maybe he is angry. Maybe he feels betrayed. Have hope again, Thomas says. Not me. You want me to invest my heart and soul in someone again? No. I'm not going to do that. In fact, Thomas, maybe he was say, I, I'm just I'm washing my hands, if you will, of the whole thing, and, and I'm done. You know, we, in this story, and obviously we're talking about Thomas right now, and Thomas gets a, a, a pretty bad rap here, doesn't he? We, we call him Doubting Thomas, and, and, and obviously he is doubting here. He, in fact, he has unbelief. And there is any number of reasons why, even today, some would say, I do not believe that Jesus really resurrected. Maybe they would cite something like, you know what, dead people don't come back to life. That just, it's, just a, it's just a story. It's, it's a myth. Maybe it would simply be that you don't want to believe it. Maybe you believe all there is is the material world. There's no such thing as spiritual things. There's no such things as, as that. Maybe you're unaware of all the reasons there are to believe, like 500 eyewitnesses. Even this past week, in the past seven days, we marked the 24th anniversary of the bombing in Oklahoma City. In the last couple of days, we marked the 20th anniversary of the shooting at Columbine High School. This morning, this morning, over 200 people were killed in Sri Lanka and as three churches were bombed. People gathered together to worship the risen Lord were killed this morning. Brothers and sisters of, of us this day. And maybe there are those in this world who would look at events like that and say, I can't believe in a risen, alive Lord because why would he let things like that happen? There are any number of reasons someone might say this morning, I don't believe. Maybe he was hurt. Maybe he was angry. Maybe he was just desperate. I don't know. I think all these things are possible. Maybe Thomas was just a, a bit of a pessimist. I mentioned that passage well ago where he heard Jesus say, we're going to go back to Bethany and we're going to go back and, and talk to Mary and Martha. And It was a place that Thomas and the disciples knew Jesus' life was in danger. And so Thomas says, well, I'll just go back and we'll just all die. Maybe not the most optimistic outlook. <laughs> he, was, he was perhaps brave, but maybe he wasn't always seeing on the positive side of things. And maybe, again, he let all that get to him. And so for a week, we kept this passage of verse 24 and 25, we understand that for, for eight days, the other nine disciples 
had been telling Thomas, he's alive, we saw him. And for, for eight days, Thomas has been hearing the joy and the hope and the excitement in their voice. And for eight days, Thomas has said, I won't be duped again. For eight days, he has seen joy in the faces and the voices of his friends. And for eight days, he has said, I will not go down that road again. You can't convince me. I saw him die. I saw the nails. I saw the blood. I saw the spear. I saw the tomb. You can't convince me, Thomas says, unless I see him in front of me where I can touch him. You're not leading me down that road again. Can you imagine that week of misery that Thomas had? Surrounded by nine guys who are telling him everything is good and him just refusing to believe it? Have you ever had one of those friends you couldn't get cheered up? That's what's going on with Thomas and the, other, and the other nine. And yet, before we're too hard on Thomas, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we're a lot more like him than we want to give ourselves credit for. I wonder if sometimes, while we might to a certain degree this morning, all acknowledge that we believe in the resurrection of Christ. I wonder if we really do. If this morning you are with me in believing that one came, he's horribly executed, and yet he's actually alive right now, that he came back to life. As we saw in the script this morning, that really does change everything. That one who was dead came back alive and didn't just come back alive for a little while. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. They died again. Jesus came back and he has never died since. He's alive today. He he arose on one day, but he's alive every day. Now, if you believe that, That changes everything. And I wonder how many of us really live like we believe that. That we know that we don't have anything to fear from this world. That even though a bomber may take the lives of believers in Sri Lanka, even though we know that in the last 120 years, more Christians have died for their faith than in the previous 1900 years, even though we know that this morning there will be believers in places around the world who will in fact and have have in fact died for their faith. We know that those things aren't the final word. Those things are temporary. The final word is resurrection. And even for us today, maybe we don't think we face any real danger for our faith. And maybe we don't living in London, Arkansas, or living in the, in the United States. doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to places that those things might happen. And you and I, as those who have placed our faith in Christ, there is nothing this world can do to us that hasn't already been defeated. Now that should get an amen. There's nothing this world can throw at us that hasn't already been defeated. Do we live like that? Or do we live afraid that people might think we're foolish? Or do we live that people might think we're gullible for believing in something like the resurrection? Do we fear? Do we live in fear Do we live in misery like Thomas did for those eight days? We might be a lot more like him than we realize. 
if not careful, we can let our doubts or our fears, perhaps, our worry about looking silly in this world, maybe pain, maybe disappointment, maybe confusion, we can let those things rob us of joy and life and ultimately faith. Thomas in verse 24, 25 is more focused on what he'd lost than what he had the potential to gain. You know what? I'm, I'm like this. I think we're all like this. We're more worried about what we just lost than what we have to give up than what we might gain. Thomas was worried about what he might, what he'd already lost. And yet, all this happening, all this stuff takes place. Jesus has appeared to, to, the, to the Mary and the Marys. He's, he's appeared to others. He's appeared to the guys on the road to Emmaus. He's appeared to the, to the remaining members of, of the twelve. And Jesus doesn't get around to just berating or chewing out Thomas. He meets Thomas where he's at, and he shows up, and he says to Thomas the first thing, peace. John chapter 14, before he leaves uh, to, to be crucified, as he's with the disciples that last supper, Jesus tells them, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you. Not as, not as this world gives to you, peace I give to you. And the first thing he says here to, to, to Thomas is, peace be with you. It's, it's the greeting, shalom. You know what, when Christ shows up, you know what he brings with him? Peace. Our lives, our souls, our hearts, our soul are so at unrest. So many of us, even this morning, are living with all kinds of turmoil in our minds and worries in our hearts. We can make you a list today of everything that is wrong and everything that causes us pain. And those, are, those may well be legitimate. I'm not saying they aren't. But when the resurrected Christ shows up, when one who is dead shows up in front of you, that stuff disappears, and guess what shows up? Peace. Jesus says, Thomas, peace. Peace with you. He didn't chew Thomas out. He didn't say, Thomas, I told you. Now, that's what I would have said. <laughs> Thomas, I told you three times before all this is going to happen. I told you so. He says, peace. It comes with a resurrection. We have peace in the presence of God. We have peace with God the Father through Christ. And by the way, that peace is alive is as alive today as it was 2,000 years ago. Peace be with you, he tells Thomas in verse 26. And then in verse 27, he tells Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. I, the word isn't used here, but I want to tell you what he does here with Thomas. He redeems him. He takes what is broken. He takes what is false. He takes a heart that is closed, angry, and hurt. He takes that heart and he redeems it and turns it into one who is hopeful. He redeems the heart of Thomas. Again, he doesn't chew out the heart of Thomas. He doesn't condemn the heart of Thomas. He redeems it. And guess what God wants to do with us today? Maybe you find yourself this morning a little unsure. Is this resurrection stuff really true? Yeah, I know we talk about it. It's the heart of Christianity, if you will. But really, 
And God is not here to condemn you. He is here to redeem you this morning. To turn your heart into one that is soft and tender and open. To turn your heart into one that trusts. This is what resurrection begins to mean. He redeems Thomas. Now all this is pointing to something more. The resurrection in and of itself provides you and I with the hope that this world will never defeat us. Can they kill me? Yes. Can they hurt us? Yes. Can they defeat us? No. Because of the resurrection. That's all true. But when Jesus was talking about the sign of Jonah, when Jesus was talking about rebuilding the temple in three days, when we look at Joseph and Abraham and Isaac, and we look at Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, what all these things are are signs that point us somewhere. They're telling us something about who Jesus is. And what the resurrection tells us about the identity of Jesus, Thomas, the one who is doubting, if you will, is the one who tells us the truth. And he says this. He sees this. He sees it and says, My Lord and my God. The doubting Thomas went to a worshiping Thomas. And you know what? If I was Thomas, I'd want to be, guys, stop calling me doubting Thomas and call me worshiping Thomas. Because that's what he does here. He worships. He falls down on his knees and he recognizes for the first time everything Jesus has been telling him for three years. He's not simply an anointed one. He's not simply a Messiah. He's not simply a king. He is our Lord and our God. By the way, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for the last year. We stopped off about a month ago to get under the Easter preparation. We're going to get back into the Gospel of Mark next week. I just spoiled the ending. <laughs> We're going to get done with Mark here in a few months, and the ending is this. He is Lord and He is God. So don't let, that, don't let that spoil you for coming back. You know, it, you know the ending. He worships. Now this worship is powerful for a number of reasons. One, it just says the truth. But I want you to know something here. Look at, look at that possessive pronoun, if you will. I'm going to a little English grammar on you. Thomas doesn't say simply, you are Lord, you are God. He says, my Lord. My God. That possessive makes a lot of difference. A little over 23 years ago, Angela and I got married. And when we got married, we went through the wedding ceremony. I became a husband. She became my wife. But that in and of itself is not where it ends. We, the, the, the significance of the wedding ceremony wasn't that I just became a husband or that she became a wife. She became my wife. And I became her husband. That makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? <laughs> There's lots of husbands and wives out there. She's mine. You can't have her. And I'm hers. I hope she feels the same way. <laughs> the, pos <laughs> the possessive makes all the difference. Do you know what makes the resurrection for any one of us this morning all the powerful is if we come to the music, we come to the worship, we come to the scriptures. 
And we could say, not just, he's God, he's my God. That's the power of what Jesus did when he, did when he showed up to Thomas. This morning, I think we're probably either in one of two spots. We're either filled with a little bit of fear and doubt and unsure of where we are in life. We're maybe a little confused about the identity of Christ. Or we're worshiping. It's one of those two. We can celebrate and talk about Easter and the resurrection all we want to. But this morning, we're either doubting we're either unbelieving or we're worshiping. When Jesus shows up, when the resurrected Jesus shows up, I hope this morning we'll be worshiping. The resurrection is a sign. It's a sign pointing us to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. That Jesus Christ, as the Gospel of John begins with, is God, was God, created with God. That when he showed up on earth in human form, he was God in human flesh. And that when he died upon that cross, he did so as a sacrifice so that he could not only pay for the cost of my sin, but that he could overcome death on the third day, and by doing so, not only hand me victory, but point to this inevitable conclusion that he is my Lord and my God. It's the sign he gave us. So it's my prayer this morning that when we walk out these doors, every single one of us have seen the signs and have said to him, he is my Lord and my God, just like Lachelle did a few moments ago.